1867, there was a Parisian named Gaston Ailier who published a book called Le Botoniste Profane, The Profane Botanist. There was a minor scandal when priests and bishops, the local Roman Catholic churches, condemned this book. It was subsequently banned nationwide, and the author summarily moved to England. Eilier claimed that the book had come from a prophetic dream he had. After being in an accident, he was briefly hospitalized, unconscious for three days, and when he woke up, he had clear memories of a remarkable and horrifying vision. Eilier claimed that he had followed a sinister gardener into what he called the fetid mirror image of Eden, filled with living plants and alien life forms. The profane botanist was not profane in the way we use the term today. It's not about profanity. It meant unholy, unnatural. Eilier turned his vision into a book, which was part novel, part memoir, and part gardening tutorial. He even included sketches and paintings, along with step-by-step instructions for growing some of the horrors he described. And it was those very instructions that infuriated the church the most. While the author had always maintained that this was a work of fiction, church officials thought that it might be used as a tool for recruitment into the dark arts, a fear which would actually come to pass some years later. Much like alchemy, or transmutation, profane botany involves using natural science for unnatural results. In this case, to grow weaponized plants and vegetation, to create hybrids and innovate new and dangerous flora, In the final passages of his book, Eilier states that the ultimate goal of profane botany is to undermine, destroy, and then completely replace the ecosystem of our world. Plant life is the basis for our ecosystem, and the profane botanist sought to erase that entirely, to prepare the earth for a new kind of life, and to do that he needed to create new, unnatural hybrids of plant matter and human tissue. Which was a corker of a horror novel idea, but pretty far out in terms of scientific feasibility. Until 1890, when a man named Ezra Dunwich used the book The Profane Botanist as a basis for what he called his Botanical Science League. Dr. Dunwich was a noted horticulturalist at the time, and he put together a group of like-minded scientists out at his manor with the sole purpose of putting the principles of profane botany into practice. Dunwich called it a think tank. His contemporaries said it was a cult, Through the eyes of history, Ezra Dunwich has become known as the first of a new breed of eco-terrorist. 
Dunwich stated repeatedly that this was merely a scientific exploration of a bizarre theory. Their group merely wanted to see if any of the outlandish ideas in the book could actually work. From 1890 through the fall of 1897, Ezra Dunwich and his small brain trust lived out in the country, isolated from the rest of the world, working on profane botany. In time, he hired armed guards for his manor and started to erect fences of a ridiculous height to keep out prying eyes. At the same time, he started to submit papers to academic journals all across the country. Dunwich, in these papers, claimed significant results. So significant, in fact, that each and every academic journal rejected each and every research paper. He was advised, more than once, to start submitting his work to pulp sci-fi magazines and penny dreadfuls. After all, anyone claiming to have successfully created hybrids of animal tissue and plant tissue, well, they must be mad, right? In the fall of 1897, the Dunwich Manor and most of the grounds were consumed in a massive fire, which was the end of the first and only notable adherent to the idea of profane botany. Until... Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. Gaston Elier wrote La Botoniste Profane in 1867, and it was banned so quickly it was never officially translated into any other language. I was able to obtain a digital copy of the novel for the show, from which I will translate certain passages. My French is rusty, so bear with me. <clears throat> La Botoniste Profane, page 4. The botanist considered himself a student of both science and poetry, a child of nature. He saw his peers were destroying the beauty of the natural world. He did not wish to quarrel with them, but rather to give nature the weapons it needed to defend itself. He collected the most poisonous, toxic, aggressive flora from around the world. And then carefully, Avec le cerveau d'un docteur et les mains d'un artiste, he began to breed new and exotic creations. Plants to kill man and to spite God. The botanist, says Jardinier, took inspiration from an American folktale, Johnny Appleseed, and spread his blasphemous creations out into the countryside. He planted sapling and vine, bulb and seed, 
in places that would not be conspicuous, for they needed time to set down roots and rise up. As the months passed, the botanist began to read reports of his work in the newspapers. Wells were poisoned, creeks turned toxic and ran with rotten fish. Blooming flowers releasing clouds of toxic spores. Children blinded, the elderly dying in their sleep. He read of his works, and he was proud. Dr. Harriet Ford might have been short, and she might have been painfully thin, and she might have looked a lot more youthful than her 43 years of age. But by no means was she a woman to be underestimated. Not in the classroom, not out in the field, not even in a fistfight, as some stories go. But you know how some stories go. In 2012, UC Berkeley was one of the premier places in the world to study botany. Their program was, and continues to be, top flight, with a who's who of respected botanists running the show. One of the hotshots they had as a lecturer there was Dr. Harriet Ford, a scientist of no small acclaim. Dr. Ford was in fact considered by many to be the world's foremost authority on invasive plant species. She was a big draw within her field and routinely had visiting botanists come from all over the world to sit in on her lectures. So she was sort of a big deal. And this sort of big deal notoriety earned Dr. Ford a great deal of leniency with her many quirks and eccentricities as well as her bold and uncompromising attitude. It also earned her big, juicy government research projects that came attached with huge money and even huger non-disclosure agreements. Dr. Ford used the hush-hush research money to fund her pet projects. Her latest, newest grant was for easily the most unusual project she had ever worked on. It was being funded by the Department of Restricted Operations, and it had to do with profane botany. Now, it was no secret that profane botany had been a pet project of Dr. Ford for some years now. She'd collected 17 different copies of the original run of the banned book. She'd also amassed a copy of every single book, article, or journal that had so much as referenced the botanical boogeyman over the years. As much as she knew about invasive plants, and she knew a lot, she knew even more about this book and its surrounding mythology. According to the DRO, there was a new eco-terrorist cell that had emerged, and they were using the profane botanist as their Bible. So the DRO wanted to put together a team to look at profane botany under a microscope. They felt there was no one more qualified than Dr. Ford to lead this team. She was going to visit key sites where unnatural plant life had been reported, and the goal was to collect data and flora samples, and that's it. There would be minimal on-site analysis. The main thrust was data collection 
for later government analysis. Dr. Ford was well aware that she might not ever be allowed to see the results of her own research expedition. But she still couldn't resist. She would be getting paid to investigate her biggest passion. This passion, this this ghost story that had been turned into fringe science. And it wasn't that Dr. Ford believed profane botany was real, necessarily. It was the idea that something so outlandish might be scientifically possible that continued to fascinate her. The DRO was sending a field agent to work with her and to act as a facilitator for the trip. The man was named Kevin Koja, a former Marine medic and a medical doctor. Mostly, he was coming along to supervise. To get all the data she needed, Dr. Ford was going to need good people to assist her. Instead of reaching out to her contemporaries, she decided to recruit the best and brightest from grad school. Because A, they would work harder, and B, they would do as told neither of which she could count on from other doctors. She selected a man named Malik, who was a wonderkin in the area of systemic botany. He studied not just the structure of plants, but how plants interacted with one another and their environment. There was Kelly, who was the plant biochemistry whiz, who also had extensive field experience, so she was perfect to take the lead for sample collection. Finally, there was Phil, the paleobotanist. A paleobotanist puts current plants into a deeper historical context and so can extrapolate data about previous plant growth. All three of them were, naturally, thrilled for the opportunity, which led to reason C for using students. When someone like Dr. Harriet fucking Ford tells you to sign an enormous non-disclosure agreement and be ready to leave the following morning, you just say, yes, ma'am. None of them had ever heard of profane botany before. They didn't know the names of Gaston Eilier or Ezra Dunwich. None of them were well-versed in the lore of the hand collector, nor of the trapdoor spider and they were not at all aware of the bloody history behind the place called Cannibal Island. But very soon, they would be. Le Batoniste Profet, page 29. As surely as God is real, so is his opposite. He is known by many names and wears many faces, but he is always uh, uh, le diable, the, the adversary. He called upon the botanist and took him to a remote stretch of land. This land had long been cursed, the soil barren and rocky. And yet the adversary said, This was where the botanist would grow his infernal garden. There are places, you see, in our world that lay closer to La Guerre 
than others. This place, this field, was a soft spot betwixt the natural world and eternal hell. This is where he would plant the organ orchards. When you think botanist, you think glitz, you think glamour. But Dr. Ford did not get a chance to be flown around in private jets all that often. In this particular case, the DRO was looking for results as quickly as possible. So, Agent Koja secured for them private planes, cars, and vans for every step of this project. The first jump for the team was short up the coast to Seattle, to the row house where the hand collector, Martin Rose, had taken many of his victims. The same place he stored all the severed hands that he took, the same place his final victim was found, the same place he was last seen. The building, old and decrepit as it was, had enjoyed a brief flash of notoriety, for serial killer sightseer tours and mouth breathers looking to relive a sick part of local history. Even that had come to a halt some months back when the place had been quarantined and condemned by the city due to a toxic mold infestation. Dr. Ford and Kelly both donned full biohazard gear and entered through the basement of the row house. Down here, they saw no traces of toxic mold. They didn't see any plant life. Oddly enough, they saw no bugs or rats either. The basement, although damp, was desolate. On the ground floor, they started to see little wisps of red mold in the corners where the moisture collected. And this got a lot worse on the second floor. The hallway that ran down the center of the apartment block was heavily spotted along the floor, ceiling, and walls with oblong ovals and streaks of an ugly maroon mold, the likes of which Dr. Ford had never seen before. The two of them crept down the hallway going slowly, taking scrapings and samples of every new and thicker iteration of the red mold that they saw. They quickly traced the mold to its epicenter, the very same room that used to be occupied by Martin Rose. When they pushed the door open, they found that the room was covered floor to ceiling with this mold. It was so thick in here that it actually looked like the walls were caked in dried blood. It's the best way to describe the stuff. That's how Harriet Ford wrote it in her journal after. Like gummy, congealed gore stuck to the walls. She took one final sample from the heart of the thickest patch of mold she'd found yet. It must have been a quarter of an inch thick, and it was run through with what looked like tiny red threads. Were they roots? Were they veins? 
It was like nothing she'd ever seen before in nature. Two hours later, the team and all the samples were back on the jet and they were flying east. Koja was the facilitator. He arranged the flights. He booked the cars. He transported the equipment. He got the permits. He greased the palms. He basically did everything so that the scientists could focus 100% on science. So it was on him to arrange passage into the sealed up Slate County Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania. He'd been in contact over the phone with the security outfit that watched over the place. It was not until they had landed and driven all the way out to the prison that they were informed that Ambrose Security had declined their request for entry. This was just a speed bump. They were close now. They were within striking distance of the next area of interest on their journey. A cave system on the Ohio border that had once been used by a serial killer as his murderous sanctum sanctorum. After years of taking victims and staying completely undetected, the trapdoor spider had gone out with a bang in 2002. He'd killed over three dozen first responders in his barbed wire web before disappearing in a subsequent cave-in caused by the police when they dropped explosive charges into the cavern to bring down the rest of the web. The police were only partially successful. There were still a multitude of caves underneath what used to be called Bob Wire's Barb Wire Emporium. The team arrived in the middle of the night and waited for first light before they descended. The plan was to try and get some sleep in the van, but come on, no one could sleep. They were all too amped up for this job. Harriet started to regale her students with tales of the profane botanist, Hell's Gardener, who wanted to terraform our world into a living hellscape. She explained how the book said there were soft spots where hell was a little bit closer to earth. These were the places where demons crossed into the natural world, our world. These are also the places the profane botanist started to grow his horrific hybrids from whence they would spread and spread throughout the world. And so with all that, who could sleep? When it was finally bright enough, they all donned their bio suits with headlamps, full visors, and started down. There was only one clear tunnel into the caverns, and they all made sure to take it very slowly. The suits were very cumbersome, and no one liked wearing them, but they were venturing into what was essentially a sealed and contained ecosystem all of its own. There was no telling what they might find down there. After a 20-minute descent, they checked in with Koja up top on the walkie, and then they entered the remains of the massive cavern. And it was still huge, even with the ceiling partially collapsed and the walls broken and cracked. They saw that the red mold was everywhere here. 
the same red mold as in Seattle, only more of it and denser and thicker. It covered every inch of the rock walls. It made the floor almost too slippery to walk across safely. Harriet Ford went to the nearest wall to collect a sample of it. So much thicker here. It almost looked like... It almost looked like a scab, as gross as that sounds. She pulled out her knife and used the tip of it to flake the upper layer off of the mold. It crunched between her gloved fingertips like a crispy cornflake. This mold was very dense. It was very thick, with a strong, crispy, congealed outer layer that made it appear very much like a scab. She took a step back and looked around. The entire wall, as far as she could see in every direction, was covered in one giant scab. Malik and Kelly were both collecting samples elsewhere. Phil, for his part, was aiming his camera upwards and just taking pictures by the dozen. You got to see this, Doc, Phil says. I thought that they took the barbed wire web down, but it's still here. The trapdoor spider, of course, had spent years of his life constructing a massive web of barbed wire and razor wire to ensnare his victims. And it had been cut down. Harriet Ford observed the lines crisscrossing the air above her, and she felt something stir in her chest. Something akin to wonder, the dark side of delight, pretty close to pure, unadulterated panic. That isn't wire, she whispered. It's vines. There were hundreds, no, thousands of wire-thin vines extending from wall to wall, top to bottom, each of them ridged with purple thorns that from a distance looked remarkably like barbs. An entire web of blood-red vines had sprung up to replace the old web. They say that nature finds a way. But this wasn't any kind of nature that Harriet Ford had ever seen. Le Batoniste Profan, page 88. The botanist work became increasingly sacrilegious, and indeed, the once humble doctor was consumed with darkness and pride, in equal measure. He had created things the world would never know. He was breeding new forms of life in the belly of hell, and bringing it to earth piece by piece. On that dark island called Le Fin du Monde, on the end of the dark eternal Black Sea, the botanist had created hybrids of plant matter and human flesh. 
Trees had scar tissue for bark, blood-red sap that pulsed with poisonous life, branches filled with ugly purple fruit that throbbed and breathed. But now he needed new plants, new hot parasitic, and new flesh. The team was on the plane, flying to Siberia, of all goddamn places, to a desolate island with a blood-soaked history, labeled on the maps as Nazino, but better known far and wide as Cannibal Island. In 1933, some 6,000 undesirables were sent to this place by Stalin's commie government, exiled to a remote island in the dead of winter with no supplies and no escape. Three months later, 4,000 of those people were dead or missing. The grad students only learned about this slice of history on the plane ride to it. They studied maps and aerial photos of the island, and Koja gave them all a debrief. The Russian government had kept this tragedy secret for as long as it possibly could, and so for almost 80 years, the island had set, isolated, and forgotten. Koja was well prepared for this final leg of the trip. He had winter gear for everyone in the correct sizes. He had passports for everyone. They landed in a remote, snow-covered field. No airport, no buildings, not even any lights, just a little strip of a runway with two decommissioned Russian army transports at the end of it. Two drivers with orders not to ask questions and not to look them in the face. The transports took them overland to the edge of a river where there was a boat waiting for them with another driver who wouldn't speak to them or look them in the face. This time, Koja was not staying behind. He was coming with them to the research site in the heart of the island. And he was bringing a machine gun with him. Harriet found herself somehow comforted by the presence of this gun. She got the feeling, that funny feeling in her chest again, just like she did in the bottom of the cavern when she stepped on the shore of Cannibal Island. For years now, Studying the profane botanist, she had heard the rumors about this place. There were so many rumors that dated back decades. Now, rumors are just rumors, but here she was, a scientist with the chance to put all the rumors to the test. Her students were not nearly as gung-ho. Between jet lag and the icy winds of Siberia, they were worn down. They were worn out. Harriet somehow managed to rally the troops and got them to lug a lot of the gear and to follow her and Koja into the woods and deeper into the island. When you think Siberia, you get a visual conjured up in your head, right? Tall, snow-drenched trees, winds, howling, endless ice and snow, a gunmetal gray sky that's never seen the sun. And this is precisely what it was like on the edge of the island. 
But the deeper they went into the forest, the closer they got to the center, the warmer it became. The snow and the ice started to go away. And finally, even those cold, frigid Siberian winds became warm and moist, like the long, slow breath of a sleeping lover on the back of your neck. Even the trees look different here. They were covered with large clumps of fungus, each one about the size of a clenched human fist. They had little sprouts extending out of each of the clumps, and when Harriet knelt down to get a closer look, she saw what appeared to be flecks of human nails at the tips of these sprouts. Gingerly, using just her tools and not touching the fungus, Harriet took two different clumps as samples. Kodra, meanwhile, was urging everyone forward, onward, pushing them faster, like he knew exactly where they were going. Using the phrase, the heart of the island implies the center of the island, but in this case, it was much more literal. When Koja finally stopped and dropped his gear, the rest of the team did likewise. They all had to gawk and marvel at what they were seeing. Something invasive had definitely attacked the island. It had infested the earth and it had transformed the flora into something utterly alien. And immediately Harriet knew that she had been lied to. There was no echo-terrorist cell using the profane botanist as inspiration because what she was seeing here was not of this earth. This was not man-made. As atrocious as humankind is, we are still not capable of something like this. The tall, stout tree trunks that surrounded the small clearing looked like fingers, huge fingers reaching out of the earth towards the invisible sun. They were covered not in bark, but in skin, with knots of scar tissue and brittle bone branches overhead. The ground was thick with these mottled gray ferns, each having segmented stems covered with veiny leaves and oozing needle tips. And the same thorny barbed wire vines from the caves, they were here, crisscrossing the ground everywhere. Harriet stepped over each of them very carefully. These vines were much thicker here than in the cave. And when she looked, she could actually see them throbbing, pulsing like vessels in an infernal circulatory system. Don't touch anything, she told the students. Now we are the invasive species. Koja overruled her ruthlessly. He commanded the students to keep taking samples so that they could leave as quickly as possible. The ground was so soft here. It wasn't like dirt or tundra or mud. It felt like walking across the soft, bloated belly of something old and dead and decaying. 
but it was feverishly hot, even through their boots. This place was responding to their presence. The vines writhed on the ground, reaching out. The twisted bone branches overhead blossomed tiny flowers. Malik knelt down to take a sample of the sinister ferns. He clipped one of the stems right near the base, and it oozed a watery white pus. Two seconds later, inexplicably, it ejaculated this ooze splattering his hand, and the sap instantly started to eat through his heavy glove. Immediately, all the other stems of all the other ferns bent towards him, pushed by an invisible current, and those thin fern leaves tipped with tiny needle points started to brush against his arms. The leaves grabbed at him, pushing those tiny thorns into his skin, his arm, his wrist, his hand. Malik tried to scream, but the paralytic was too fast-acting. The acid was already in his blood, and his mouth was already locked open in silent scream. Meanwhile, Kelly was using her short blade to gently slice one of those fresh blooms from a low-hanging bone branch. She saw the petals pull back as she touched it, and a small, dark eye looked back at her from the center. There was a puff, and a blast of pink pollen came from the pupil of the flower. It immediately began eating through her goggles. She pulled them off and threw them away, but it was too late. The skin around her eyes was already pink and puffy. Kelly started to scream, swatting the air at invisible things that no one else can see, and she scrambled, running between the trees, until she was gone. Harriet Ford did not see her student leave. She was transfixed by what was happening to Malik in front of her. He'd collapsed to the ground only seconds ago, and now something was starting to happen underneath his clothes. Needle thorns started to push through his skin and the fabric of his clothes, reaching skyward. The same mottled gray thorns that had pricked and poisoned him were now erupting from his skin and growing from roots set in his flesh. Harriet looked around the clearing. Only now did she realize Kelly was gone. And so was Phil. There was only her and Koja left. The agent, for his part, didn't seem worried. He was more awestruck by what was around them than anything else. What is this place, she asked him. She sensed that he knew. He told her, They say the ravenous one was created here. Right here, in this clearing. They came through from the other side, from the end of days. And when they left, a profane garden began to grow. Doctor, when you open a door, it affects our world. It changes it. It poisons it. When you leave that door open, 
This is what happens. The remains of Malik were nothing but a dull lump hidden under a cluster of gently swaying ferns, all reaching towards Harriet Ford. Kelly was still gone, and so was... Wait, there he is. There was, there was Phil, emerging from between the trees, staggering into the clearing. It was clear that something horrible had happened to Phil. He was naked, stripped of clothing, and dressed all over with gaping wounds and caked blood. It looked, somehow, like he had been tortured for weeks. Some of his wounds appeared to be badly infected. He dropped to his knees in front of Harriet, and up this close she saw that one of his eyes was missing, as were both of his thumbs and his genitalia. Where did you go? she asked him. Phil could only mumble through a lacerated tongue, but it sounded like he said, The organ orchards are real. They grow in hell. As he finished speaking, Koja stepped behind Phil and gently injected him in the side of the neck with a hypodermic needle. He lowered the badly damaged man to the ground face first. It's okay, Phil. I got you. I got you, he said, very calmly. Before the grotesquely mutilated grad student had even taken his last breath, Koja was pulling out a bone saw and starting to cut a circle around the crown of Phil's skull. Harriet was frozen. Stunned, fucking terrified, unable to move, unable to fully process what she was seeing unfold in front of her as Koja pulled off the top of Phil's skull, revealing a brain that was still twitching and steaming. The agent pulled on a heavy glove and plunged his fist into that exposed brain. He gritted his teeth and started twisting his wrist, reaching and rooting around in the muck of Phil's skull until he found what he was seeking. Koja pulled out a tumor, a shapeless mass of the darkest black flecked with a dazzling emerald green. The tumor oozed it wiggled in Koja's hand, trying to touch his skin. He quickly dropped it into a sample jar and screwed the lid down tightly. As he packed up his gear, Harriet could do nothing but stare at that jar and this tumor crawling around inside of it. You knew this was going to happen, she said to him. No. Koja answered, honestly. We didn't know, but we hoped. Now let's go home. We have everything that we could possibly want.
Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. You can send feedback for the show to a scary home companion at Gmail or find me on Facebook and Instagram under the same name. Please subscribe to the show through Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and many other platforms. Special thanks to Marianne Simpson for translating. And a big shout to everyone who contributed to the GoFundMe we set up to purchase this digital copy of The Profane Botanist. Your generosity towards the show will be remembered. The episode was edited and produced by Jeff Brain Salad Surgery Davidson, also produced by Mon Petit Cherry, Jamie Lee Hensley. Music was provided by Pang with Butterfly Bondage and Master Toad with Garden of Nightmares. And as always, Chelsea Oxendine provides the theme music. Thank you.